Hello, everybody, and welcome to the HTML All the Things podcast, episode number 28, Your First Website Contract. I'm your host, Matt Lawrence, and I'm joined again by my co-host, Mike Coran. What have you been up to this week, Mike? Uh, yeah, hey, Matt. Uh, what haven't I been up to this week? So this uh, these last, I don't know, even like you could say 24, 48 hours have been crazy, just an insane amount of contract work. Uh, Matt and I were talking about it before the podcast started, but... Uh, we're even considering bringing some contractors on, uh, potentially very asterisk. Uh, don't know when that's going to be, but potentially, you know, within the next month or two or something like that. And uh, it could be one of you. I don't know. Like, we're going to be looking at all our options at that point. And maybe if people are interested, they could, you know, contact us on Twitter or Instagram and, you know, throw their hat in the ring. Uh, we'd love to have a chat and potentially, again, not no guarantees at this point but uh, we could be could be bringing on some more team members so that's pretty exciting uh and yeah that's that's about it html the things kind of unfortunately was put on the back burner for me uh, i had to edit that video that i promised uh with uh, vue.js and i just couldn't get to it because just work just kept piling in and, you know had to put out fires here and there uh I don't know. It's, it's all good. Like I'm not complaining, but wish I could have got some more HTML thing stuff done. Um, yeah, that's about it. What about you, Matt? Yeah. So, uh, I've also been busy. Um, I sort of do the more, I was going to say small business, but I'm kind of small and medium business stuff now. So, and I'm also going to be taking some of the tasks from your side as well, uh, here and there as well. So I'm kind of, I'm kind of like all over the place. Uh, I've, I've always kind of been like that though. I don't like to be like tied down to one project or something like that. So I'm kind of bouncing around like crazy doing the show like doing this podcast doing uh random client work that's like repeat doing new client work that's coming in and we've been doing that for the, the last week and so it's kind of been a crazy a crazy week as well um one of the things that we had discussed was we have a new segment idea for the show it's not going to be in this episode um because this episode is being shot or recorded very late i am sick and mike is tired <laughs> so yep so um it's not going to be in this episode, but we want to do a a, a, an, a, an op, a recurring, but like an optional recurring. Like it won't be every week like web news. It'll be just whenever we think is going to happen. And it's going to be about helpful resources that we find online. So that like, you know, kind of look forward to that because I have a couple of uh, bookmarks here and there that I find really useful that I think you guys will find useful as well. Um, so that that's going to be something that we're going to be coming up. Also, we have we were talking uh, right before this big kind of bubble of content where it kind of came through was one of the ideas we had for a content plan uh, for HTML, all the things other than the podcast is to keep things in one topic. So every week we do the podcast and it's generally on one topic, one segment of the industry, one specific thing or idea, right? It's kind of a little more abstract, but it's like we could, you know, it's, it's kind of like you're pigeonholing yourself into one, into one idea but it's every week. And what I was thinking was instead of us trying to bounce around ideas where it's like, let's say this week for well, prime example is your first website contract, which is for beginners, which is this episode, instead of us making an episode of the podcast for beginners now, and then me trying to write a medium article for like super experienced people, you know, in a couple of days, you know, my mindset isn't there. So since the podcast is our anchor, it's our weekly thing. It's something that we always do. Uh, barring holidays and uh, sickness or partial sickness, as I said, I'm sick now. Um, 
what I think what we should do is we should use the podcast as a topic decider. I know that's the wrong way to say it, but basically it's like, if I want to make a medium article this week, or if I want to make something else other than maybe a tidbit or maybe something else, I'm not saying that's going to happen this week. This is a content plan to be clear, but it would be nice to kind of keep it all in the same, same topic. And then it's all, you know, fresh in our minds. We can actually refer to our own show notes to get ideas on how to write things. We could even take our show notes and then write like a more detailed thing in writing uh, like regarding one of our segments, let's say from even this episode, we could take that, go to medium, write like a proper, a proper, um, like article or essay or whatever you want to call it. But then, you know, so it's all in the same topic. So, uh, I know it's getting a bit long winded, but that's basically what we've been talking about. So, you know, look forward to that. I also mentioned discord also look forward to that. I didn't get around to that this week, but, uh, we'll be announcing that, um, everywhere you'd expect pro- on the show. No doubt. Uh, we're also looking at possibly getting a guest as well. Um, we're in talks about that. So another guest that should be pretty interesting. And I kind of have a cool idea for the episode structure, which I haven't run by anyone yet. Everything is totally theoretical, not like nothing's together yet. So take everything I'm saying right now with a grain of salt. But this is sort of what you know, our mindset is going forward. But anyway, let's let's kind of jump into this episode because it's one of those, again, it's one of those episodes that could be really short, or not really short, but it could be short, but it kind of looks like it's long because the show notes are kind of detailed. So basically, in this episode, we're assuming uh, that your first website contract that you will be doing professionally um, will be rather simple. Now, sometimes you can get stuck with a rather large project, but generally speaking, prof- people who are jumping into the professional game, especially if they're jumping onto like a freelancer site, will, again, in general... Uh, take on an easy site. So what we're kind of assuming is what we what we call like a business card site. So it's like, you know, company name, contact, address, about us, maybe some social links. Generally, there's no CMS, so there's no database or anything to worry about. It's just really like a small business that needs like a, just a presence online, uh, but they don't, you know, write articles or anything like that online. So that's kind of what we're doing. Um, and I'm going to let Mike kind of take off with it once I uh, just go through the segments here. So Segment number one is gathering requirements. So that'll be like, so Mike will be describing exactly what I'm talking about in a little bit more detail. So you understand like what the premise of this episode is. Um, Segment number two is uh, design and iteration. Uh, Segment number three is development. Segment number four is deployment. And then finally, the recurring segment web news, which is going to be Android desktop and Chrome OS. So I'm going to toss it off to Mike for that very first segment there. Gathering requirements. Take it away, Mike. All right, Matt. Uh, so we've talked about requirements a few times, uh, but this whole conversation that we're going to have today is going to be very specific to a typical first site that a developer will have to do for their first project. Obviously, uh, everyone's first project is a little bit different, but a lot of the time when you're becoming, when you're first starting to become a developer, you're looking for something kind of uh, basic. Um, you're hoping for something that will, you know, get you comfortable with the whole process of communicating with the customer, uh, delivering something on time, stuff like that. So this is kind of the scenario that I see very often happen to a first-time client or a first-time web web developer. So in this scenario, uh, let me paint a picture in your mind. Uh, There's a small business that contacts you called Happy Coffee. Uh, It has approached you with a request uh, for their old site to be updated. The site is from the early 2000s and very old. It's not responsive and has outdated information about their business on it. So they need they need you to update their online presence. They don't need you to create a whole like you know shopping experience. They don't need you to 
uh, make it so that people can order anything from the site. Um, no extensive features. The budget is fairly small. They don't want to waste too much time, uh, too much money on the effort of putting, like driving traffic to their store. They're more of a word of mouth business, uh, but they want to make it so that the, their current customers and the future customers will go to there and feel like they're a professional business and not like a rinky dink, you know, operation that can't even update their website for uh, a decade. So that that's kind of where, where they're coming from. Um, you've had the back and forth already with them and this is where what you've got from them. Um, so the first thing, your job is to figure out what the client's preferences are and then you want to align your vision align your visions like so both yours your vision for the site and your client's vision to the site to the same kind of structure that that you're going to be working with um so first thing that i like to really do is ask them to send you some sites of their competitors that they like and then ask them not only to do that but highlight the sections specifically in those sites that appeal to them so like if they really like the you know about section of this site make sure that they you know specify that that's what they really like about it if they really don't like a certain section make sure that they try to specify like have this conversation with them beforehand and then let them send you a few sites maybe an email maybe have a discussion over the phone again depending on how the client likes to communicate every client's a little bit different so you got to gauge how this one will want to communicate with you Um, and that's how that you're going to be communicating throughout the whole process obviously so once you have some of these sites you want to lay out some specific features that this kind of basic business card in quotes uh, or uh, online presence site is going to need so typical things that a site like this will need is uh, large cover images uh, you know like that uh, a large cover image with with some text maybe like that their their logo somewhere there and stuff like that Uh, a services offered section um so what what exactly what kind of coffee they sell do they are they a coffee shop or do they still just sell coffee kind of like that um a map of the location like where can people find them uh hours of operation how to contact them uh those are big big things for a business card site obviously what what do you see on a business card the contact information that's the most important thing uh, arguably sometimes with a business card site if it's one of those things where people they they want people to land on the page and call them right away you want to make sure you focus on the contact information uh i like to put it up maybe in the in the top bar like just you know the phone number or the email whatever preference they want for contact right in the top bar right in the nav bar so that the, you know the first thing people see is that contact and they can just contact them right away um, another section that they could have is an R story kind of section where you can put some, you know, content, some text, uh, help with a little bit with SEO in, in that kind of way, pick out some keywords from their competitors, combine it, create, create a good cohesive, uh, story section. Uh, I like, like, like I said, I like to use as much content as I can, but keep it minimalistic as well. Content helps. Uh, the Google crawler to understand what the site is and help it helps it index it. So having no content is a bad idea. Uh, Some, you know, because some customers will push on you and be like, listen, I I don't have any time. I can't create any content for you. Um, And I don't even want anything like anything personal on the site, but you have to push back and make sure that they at least have some generic content even uh, to put on there just so that they can get indexed and get a, a good understanding. Like a Google can get a good understanding of what they do. Um, another thing that they could have is a photo gallery and of course a contact form. Uh, so you need to gauge their interest in all of these different features that the site could have. If it can of course have other sites, gauge yourself what, what other features you would want to work on. Uh, keep in mind that again, this is probably a lower budget site, 
uh, you don't want to overstretch yourself too much uh, in in a site like this. Even though it's, this is your first project, you're excited, you want to get as much done as possible, but you want to also make sure that uh, it's going to be completed on time and it's feasible with your with your skills that you have now. So make it make sure that you're only offering things that you're comfortable to build and comfortable to learn how to how to implement. Um, and again, like, like I was talking about that content, sometimes it's really hard to get that content out of people. And actually our previous episode, uh, the difficulty of communicating with customers, uh, we, we talk about how this can be kind of a negative experience getting content from your customer. And really, you want to make sure that it's not. And sometimes what it takes is for you to actually take the initiative and either create that content yourself. So sometimes you'll have to copyright, you'll have to create a create the the about section yourself go go on the competitors websites see what the about sections are on there see about the story sections and kind of see what their story maybe you know just ask a few questions of your client and then you know write that text up yourself it doesn't have to be long but uh sometimes it's it, it's what's required because you just can't wait on the on the customer to just not give you it you know what i mean um, and then the other thing is pictures, images of the, of the business. So if you're local uh, and the customer doesn't have good images, it might be worthwhile for you to go there one one day while you're driving by and maybe take some pictures with a DSLR. Um, worst case scenario, a nice phone camera will do for for the most part for a small business uh, website. Obviously, the better pictures, the be- the better it is. But you know you got you got to work with what you have if this is your first client. Um, you don't, you really want to make sure that you don't use those old 2000 pictures though, unless of course they were done in a professional level and you have access to the raw images. Usually what happens is they're very compressed. They're very low quality. They're usually a very strange aspect ratio. And even though the customer is very fond of them, you want to kind of convince them that it needs to be updated. Like not only does the site need to be updated, the content, uh, sometimes the logo, um, needs to be updated to save some money for logo updates. Um, I, I still kind of recommend using a thing called Fiverr, a website called Fiverr. It's a external contracting website. Uh, it's no longer really one of those things where you can pay $5 and get something tangible. Uh, it used to be actually, and we did get a few tangible things from that before. But right now it's it's probably in the you know $50 to $100 range to get a tangible logo, um, which isn't bad at, at all as well, uh, as long as the logo actually looks good in the end. You want to look for reputable contractors there. Uh, there, there's a fairly good marketplace there for reputable contractors. This is if you're on a very low budget and you just need to get something. And it's it's very easy to sell your client uh, if they're willing to spend a little bit of money to expand their, you know, to make to bring them into the into our century, into our uh, into the new development standards. You you want to make sure that because this is as much a business card for you as well. That's another thought process. Is like if you have to go out of pocket a little bit for this, like if you have to, you know not charge as much or uh, maybe, you know, get that $50 logo and not charge your customer as your first site, that might be a good uh, trade-off because you're going to be presenting this to your potential clients in the future who you might be charging more money for from, and you don't want to be presenting them with a, you know, a a pile of poop. Um, It's just the reality of it. So try to get it, try to get it as professional and as together as you can. Now look at five years down the line, you're going to look back on it and be like, Oh wow, what was I thinking and stuff like that. But you can't, you can't think about that while you're doing it. So just kind of do your best 
don't worry don't worry i'm sure it'll look great as long as you kind of put your your effort into it put your knowledge into it uh you know you either went through a boot camp you went through school you have some experience building your own sites just use that experience to all of your to all of your ability and really create something that you you can be proud of um for something like this so uh this like it's important like this will kind of give you a great starting point so and it'll for either creating a static site from scratch or choosing a template to fill in as well. Um, I'm kind of in part, like I'm for a first site. And if you have the time, I kind of push towards choosing a static site, but obviously both options are fairly common and will, will be used again. I like time permitting, create your own to like learn, learn as much as you can from this experience. Um, now, usually during the more general portion of this process, you'll be also discussing pricing. But I'm going to intentionally leave that part out of it as, as it's a whole other can of worms. Uh, pricing is a really tough one. Um, and I will probably be doing a separate episode on pricing in the future. So stay tuned for that. Uh, but don't do it for free is my recommendation. So I know a lot of people want to do like their first website for free um, just for the, you know, exposure. It's almost like... It's a tough one. It's a tough one because sometimes you don't really have a choice and it's a good, good opportunity. And maybe it does make sense, but I would usually lean on the side that a professional business wouldn't ask you to do something for free as a favor or something like that. It's a, it's a business to business relationship in this case. And if you have to take a discount, that's fine. You you have to be reasonable with your price, but try not to do it for free because this, this is part of the interaction. Like you have to learn how to get the money out of your, out of the experience, right? Like you have to learn to be able to ask for appropriate, appropriate amounts of money for the appropriate work you're doing. That's part of the experience of becoming a freelance web, web developer. That's part of the experience of becoming a web designer. It's just one of those things that you have to cross. And I think even on the first website, it's still very viable. It's you should still be pushing to get some tangible money out of it. It shouldn't be a lot. Um, it shouldn't be, you know, because you have to take you have to take the fact that the client is also taking a risk with on you choosing you and paying you this money. And so you have to sacrifice and balance the fact that you're sacrificing a little bit of price for the client's risk. So that that's kind of that that's my suggestion. I'm not going to talk about actual pricing structure uh, right now. Again, we might talk about that in a future episode. So if I'll pass it off to Matt, if he has anything to add for this section segment or move on to the next one. I just think, I think I just want to reiterate um, the whole thing about pricing. Cause I mean, you, you, you said that a lot was, I think the only, the only real comment I have is like, don't necessarily do it for free. Um, Mike's right in saying that you really need to learn how to extract that money from people. And that really sounds kind of menacing when you say like extract the money from them. Extract. Yeah. But like, the thing is, is like, there are, just like how there's there's like different classes of like, you know, there's like guys who've been in the industry for 10 years, two years, one year, maybe you're at the one year stage, whatever. Uh, if you're just if you're just starting out, you know, there's different classes of uh, like web developer just in terms of seniority. But there's also different classes of client in terms of what they're willing to pay. And some people will always try to gouge people. Some people will always try to pay the lowest price. And we all want like a, you know, a low price. But if they're not... Sometimes they're literally not valuing your service because they don't see, you know, their online presence as being very important to them. And sometimes they just literally do this to everyone where they always they always want to pay, you know, the closest to zero dollars as possible. And you don't want to get caught in the trap. And we still struggle with this to this day. You don't want to get caught in the trap 
of getting stuck with clients who literally pay zero dollars. You never want to get stuck in that in that sort of trap. And that's that's one of the hardest things to do is because you'll get you'll get stuck in like the low tier of customer, like paying customers. And you may have like fifty customers even. Like if you're on like some sort of marketplace like Fiverr and you're offering, you know, really basic web development services on there, because you can do that as well, um, on that website that Mike mentioned, Fiverr. It, like you you could have like fifty customers if you if you have run a successful business on there, but you might be being paid like like a hundred dollars a day for working on ten people's things a day. And so maybe that's good for you like good uh for you to start out or whatever, but you know, there are ways to get, you know, kind of higher level clients. Not saying that the people who can't afford a lot of like the the higher rates are bad or anything, but sometimes they literally are just trying to gouge you. So a lot of the time if you go to a consultant in general a lot of consultants will actually say, or we've had people who like, we know who are kind of like mentors who've been in the industry a little while. And they often will say like, watch your customer base. Like, don't let your customer base become all these small businesses that do not pay anything that want like a bunch of stuff for free that want to call you at any time and not pay for your time. So just, it's just something you got to watch yourself, you know, gauge it. Like, am I getting good portfolio work out of this? Can I do this price? If you cannot do the price, then you just can't do the price because they're the same way, right? If they can't meet your price, then they just can't meet your price sometimes. And it, you know, it's, you just, you just peacefully walk away. You just, you know, politely you just say, Hey, you know, no worries. We can't work together on this. It's no big deal. And everything's fine, but just watch that customer base. Don't always go with the lowest, you know, with the lowest dollar amount. Sometimes you got to kind of negotiate up. Um, but just, just something to keep in mind because we've fallen into that trap a few times and pricing is still, like I said, something we struggle with years into this. Um, so on to segment two then. So segment number two, uh, design and iteration. So generally when someone wants uh, a basic website, um, especially when it's a small business, they'll want to keep the budget low. So back to that pricing thing again, cutting down on hours is probably one of the easiest ways to lower the price for a customer and having a basic design allows you to cut some of the hours out while maintaining quality. So oftentimes like on larger client sites, so larger than this coffee shop scenario, like we said, um, they like oftentimes like larger clients will want a wireframe and a prototype and like maybe like something that's where it's just like a, a Photoshop of it. So like a fully done up image of it, however you want a mock up, however, you, whatever you want to call it. Um, they'll want everything, right? The wireframe, the mock up, the full visual thing, everything before you start developing. But when it comes to like a smaller project, like this coffee shop scenario, we, we generally will actually skip a lot of those steps. So we'll skip any sort of prototyping. We'll skip any sort of mock-ups. We'll skip any of that. And we'll rely solely on a, vi- on a wireframe for visual aid. Um, and as a brief aside, some of our larger clients actually accept this scenario as well. So they accept wireframes as the basis of their design in order to, for number one, keep costs down, get those hours down. And uh, number two, to get the project up and running as quickly as possible. Because sometimes people are just like, I don't really care. Like, as long as you're making it within modern standards, I want this up. I want it now because I want to get moving. So there's a lot of entrepreneurs like that. And we, we'll, we're happy to abide, uh, like abide by that. Like, that's totally fine with us. Um, but anyway, so... In b- back to the whole wireframe idea with the small business. So typically we'll make three to four wireframe layouts uh, based on what the customer has requested. And oftentimes we'll get a few reference sites. And Mike mentioned this already, but we'll get a few reference sites like from them, you know, during during the gathering requirements stage. Uh, and we'll we'll try to like use those to speed up our wireframe stuff because it's like, oh, they seem to like full page or full like, you know, full uh 
full screen sites, oh, they seem to like more traditional designs. And then you can kind of, you know, go when you're making your wireframes, you can make three or four traditional designs or a couple of the more modern designs of different layouts and that type of thing, just to try to give them a little bit of choice within their range of what they like. So after showing off uh, those wireframe designs, we'll get the client to uh, choose their favorite one. And you can get general feedback from them if you're if they're generally not happy with any we've had that a few times where someone's like i don't like you know one through four like designs one through four i'm not happy with them um sometimes they'll want to mix and match so or we'll get them to mix and match so they'll be like okay you know i like the slider from design one the footer from design three i like the font from this one whatever right so just stuff like that like mix and match the pieces sometimes they're happy with you know, putting it all together like a puzzle. But this part of the procedure, and this is really, this is really critical. And this part of the procedure can take anywhere from a few hours, if they're just a person who just wants to get get going, to over a week, depending on how involved your client is, and how, how involved they'd like to be on the design. Sometimes the design will flip flop between a few options before finally landing on the one that will be actually put into production. So this step does take patience. Oftentimes you'll have people just not answer. Sometimes you'll have people that will literally never answer again. You'll get to this stage and then they'll just disappear. Um, this all often happen if it's a newer client that you've never worked with before. Maybe they've changed their mind and they either for or they completely forgot about it or whatever. Um, always send like a follow up email, of course. Don't just rely on it. But uh, you know, oftentimes, oftentimes this part is kind of tumultuous. It's because it really relies on the client getting back to you and you guys actually kind of met like having a nice conversation back and forth over what what should be done on the site. So it's, it's a very, it's a very opinionated phase because you have an opinion, they have an opinion in general, especially if this is your first site, as we're toting this episode as, you know, you've never worked with them before. They've never worked with you and you've never worked with a client. So it's this whole, it's, it's the whole formula. So just something to keep in mind. Um, one thing to note is that um, our, all clients are different. All, all clients are different, but from our experience, if you're struggling with the basics of choosing uh, one of the designs you've made, so, so for example, the client doesn't like any of them, sometimes you need to have a discussion with them to reiterate what those goals are to ensure that you're on the same page. For example, uh, you might be focusing on showing off their photos that they that they have on the site while they actually don't care about that and they just really want people to see that phone number and just call the office like it's just literally a web presence to them they just want to oh you know you call, call my physical location because i'm selling suits or whatever they're selling that's what they want so you sometimes have to reiterate what the goal is because that's not sometimes that'll get lost in translation and, and get lost in that mingling like i said of the conversation of all the different opinions so this part does require patience i want to beat that in, i want to beat that point into the ground it requires patience and it's always not always i shouldn't say always but this is the point of the the cycle where things will break down if anything breaks down in general um this is the part where we get we've gotten stuck with so many clients where they've actually just completely backed out it's it's just it's it's awkward but you'll you'll master this. You'll master talking to clients in the way that they understand. You'll master getting these skills up and running uh, to actually like make these communications a lot easier and to actually like sort of prompt people to get them excited to actually answer you if they're a person that doesn't like to answer email often or very very much. Um, luckily, uh, with simple designs, the selection procedure is often the least painful. So that's one good thing for you if you're doing a website like this, and you can be right off to development in no time. And I'll use that to pass it right off to Mike, unless he has any other comments to talk about segment number three. All right. Uh, no, I'll probably move on to segment number three. You covered that very well. Um, so segment number three, development. Um, so since this is a simple static site, uh, it's fairly straightforward. I mean, 
for the first one, I would hope it will be. Uh, it's again, it's not always the case. We unfortunately, as a side story, we had a quite complicated first sight. It was static initially. Uh, I think we mentioned this a couple times before, but uh, we we were first designing a static site. And then when we already put it in production and after a few months of updating it, we were asked to create, to make it a uh, CMSable site. So that was a whole headache. Um, so make sure, again, talking about requirements before this, make sure you nail that right in the requirements phase because that, that could have been solved with, you know, more questioning, more more pushback on our side, uh, more back and forth where we wouldn't have to go back and recreate the site in uh, in a CMS uh, format. So, but let's assume that this is a, a legit static site and you've already had that back and forth, uh, the development side of it. So the choices here, again, I've, I've already talked about this, go with a template or start the site from scratch. Um, we're going to talk more about starting the site from scratch because if time allows, that would be my recommendation. Uh, again, nothing wrong with going with the template. It's, it's a totally viable solution, but let's talk about the, the one that I would recommend. Um, the workflow I do when I'm creating a site from scratch, or at least for, for one of my first sites that I would create, now my workflow is a little bit different, uh, but I would recommend kind of going through a, a stage of workflow, um, you know, starting with a base structure workflow and then moving up and making it more complicated as you go. Uh, you, I would create a file structure first, and you can do this a couple of ways. Uh, I did it initially manually without any using any package managers or anything like that. But if you just went through a... a some sort of a boot camp, uh, or you went through school and that's the way you did it. You did it through Webpack and Babel and stuff like that, and, and tools that you learned throughout that. Don't don't worry. Don't um, use the tools that you learned. Right? Like if you haven't gone through that and you just want to learn it, learn web development from scratch. There's nothing wrong with making it manually and creating the file structure manually from scratch as well. Especially for a simple site like this, uh, it's not a big deal. So I'll focus more on the simple file structure because that's what I'm assuming. But again, if you if you know how to use Webpack already because of education or because of experience, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, so when you're creating the folder structure, you want to create like the initial folders, you know, this CSS, HTML, uh, sorry, CSS folder, the JS folder. You want to create an image folder, uh, you know, get, get your basic folders. I don't think like, unless your site becomes exceedingly complicated, you might need to create a library folder, uh, depending on if you're going to be pulling in any libraries. I'm going to assume that no, this is a basic, you know, happy coffee site. Uh, you're going to have a header, you're going to have an, an, our story section, a contact section, maybe a photo gallery. That's about it. So there's not much there that you would need a library for though i guess the one thing that you could use is a light box for the gallery um so you know what create a library folder there's nothing wrong with that as well i call it i usually call it lib so basic file structure i'm sure you've seen them before follow follow those rules uh create your basic files your index.html your main.css main.js and then also a mailer.php if you have a contact form um so for the HTML, I like to create the structure of the entire site. So when I'm creating the HTML, that's one of the first things I do. I create the basic structure like the HTML tags, the head tags, uh, all the meta tags that I'm going to need in there. Uh, I like to save a very basic boilerplate when I'm doing this too so that next time I do it, it's a, it's a quicker startup. Um, but the first time, we're assuming it's the first time, if it's the first time you're doing it, uh, create that basic boilerplate. Maybe 
branch it off into a different project uh, called Boilerplate or something, template, something like that, uh, so that your next your next site that you create is accelerated by that structure. Um, so, but continuing forward, I try to keep the structure of the HTML as basic as possible with the fewest container divs as I can. I don't like containers within containers within containers. Uh, I know the box method, you used to have to do that. The float method was very, like, you know, you had to kind of put containers within containers. Bootstrap is ve- very, very container centric. Um, I'm anti-containers i guess you would say not that like obviously i still use them sometimes you have to put containers and rows and stuff like that but as as much as i can i try to make it a very flat structure um so with that in mind you create your structure a top to bottom especially if it's a single page application i like to create at least one page top to bottom uh the, the full html structure uh, if you have content, input the content right there in, inside your image tags. If you don't have content, uh, you know, use some placeholder images. Um, you can use some lorem ipsum if you don't have the text content yet. Uh, but make sure that there's something there that you can style, that you can manipulate uh, to to your liking, so that uh, it makes it a lot easier when you if you don't have the content when you get it to just you know place it in there and that's that's it. Um, for my CSS uh, recommendation, Flexbox. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a big proponent of Flexbox right now. Uh, I love Grid, but Flexbox is supported by a lot of browser versions. It's it's more widely supported right now than Grid. Uh, maybe if you're listening this to this a year or two after the episode came out, uh, I would recommend Grid for something like this. Um, or if you're doing some sort of a Babel conversion, uh, an, an ES you know ES6 conversion method. That, uh, compatibility method you could probably use grid as well because it'll handle that for you uh, but if you're doing a basic static site like we're talking about flexbox is the way to go in my opinion it's it's supported on most browsers doesn't require you to create a backwards compatibility or fallback css uh, unless you're really worried about you know the internet explorer 8 experience which let's be serious i don't think that that's going to be part of your uh, scope in this kind of project with the kind of uh, kind of money you're going to be making so and, and so just just keep that in mind while, while you're developing this as well is the scope like don't allow scope creep to happen too much because you are on a on a very limited budget uh do your best on that budget go a little bit above and beyond as much as you can uh but don't go crazy that's like like don't don't you know put hundreds of hours into something like this uh when it would be more beneficial to maybe do a project on on your own for a portfolio for hundreds of hours um or, or put that time into getting more clients kind of thing. So that's kind of what I recommend for the HTML. For CSS, uh, sorry, that, that's, that's for CSS, the Flexbox layout. Uh, remember, make the site responsive. Combining Flexbox features and media queries will make it relatively simple for a small site like this. Um, that, that's kind of how I, how I go about it. Uh, for all the JS, you'll, for JS, all you really need to do is handle the contact form. Uh, maybe some, you know, if you have a library, like I said, the lightbox library, you'll have to handle the initialization of that library in the JS file. Uh, but not much else. It's, it should be a very basic HTML file, maybe a couple event listeners here and there. Uh, so keep it as basic as possible. Uh, the contact form will just pretty much gather up all the information from your text boxes, your input boxes. And then send an AJAX request to your PHP contact form, your mailer.php function. 
Uh, the mailer.php then will then handle creating the email and sending it. Uh, this is all stuff very much like if, if you're looking at contact forms, definitely just Google, you know, PHP contact forms. Uh, and it, there's plenty, plenty of resources out there. I've used them many, many times. I've used different ones here and there. I, I don't really have a preference too much for for email contact forms. Um, I just kind of use what's the best available at the time. Uh, so I won't go too much into depth on that one. Um, and then once you're done, once you have it put together, once you're kind of happy with it, start testing and test heavily. Uh, testing is a big portion of this. Uh, test on all the different devices you own. Uh, I know you're not going to buy a device just for testing uh, purposes, but usually you'll have a few devices around the house. Maybe your parents have some phones. Maybe they have a tablet. Test on everything that you can get your hands on. So because those weird aspect ratio devices like a really small phone or a strange size tablet, those are the ones that are going to kill you with, uh, you know, getting getting the all the responsivity right. Don't kill yourself. Again, you're, you're doing a small budget project. That one-time one obscure, you know, Palm phone that no one ever uses, you don't have to worry about solving for that. But something like an iPhone 4, an iPhone 5, those kinds of things, people still use those, uh, at least while we're talking right now. And you might have to solve for a, a small screen like that, so make sure it works well on that. Um, and make, then you ha- you also have um, your friends that, you, that can help you out. You're just starting out, so... If you have friends around you that can you can maybe send them a test link out to and just have them hammer the site for a couple minutes, that first initial experience that they have on the site, they could have a lot of input just off that. Just like, you know, if they see any errors, like anything out of place, having someone that's distant from a project take a fresh look at it is a huge advantage. And that's why there's separate testing teams and big companies that handle this kinds of stuff. Um because the developers that are working on the project are too close to it and they can kind of unsee some of the some errors and stuff like that because they know how to handle them in their own mind and you kind of hide it from yourself when you're when you're really close to the project so having fresh a fresh look on it is a huge advantage and if there's anything big they'll see it right away and it won't take them very long usually they'll be happy to help uh, especially if you're just starting out um and again another another little tidbit little little uh little little advice that i give uh so to save yourself from your save your future self uh if your if your client seems like he's going to be the kind of person that's going to update some assets on an annual or biannual or monthly basis set yourself up for success in that kind of scenario uh a make sure that you have a service contract worked out with them from the beginning again that's talking about price don't want to talk about that too much but uh, make sure that that is that is discussed talked about and b set your development stuff up as well so if you have something that's month that's updated monthly make sure that you kind of uh you label it properly within your file structure so you can have a different folder for stuff that's updated like very consistently different file names for stuff that's updated consistently maybe with dates involved and stuff like that um have have your own cognitive structure for that and make sure that you you'll either document it or it's something that you've used multiple times and you'll know when you see it because you don't know the next time you'll be updating it. If it's a yearly, you'll forget about all all of this whole website because you've probably already done multiple different websites before that and you would have forgotten the file structure of this one unless you've deliberately laid out yourself to succeed to have a very, you know, familiar file structure uh for stuff that's easily updatable. Um 
with that, I think I think that's it for the basic development side of of a site like this. Uh, I'm gonna pass it off to Matt to see if he has any comments uh, or to move on to the next segment. Well, I think that was covered quite well, uh, and I think I think it kind of leads perfectly right into deployment, um, which is my next segment, second or four deployment. So um, oftentimes, when a customer is just refreshing their design they'll want to keep the same setup that they have so the same host the same domain name etc uh, which makes your setup rather easy so the next points i'm going to be saying is assuming that they are staying on the same uh, old setup because they are just refreshing their old website from 2000 i think mike said so uh, just keep that in mind when i when i say these next points so assuming uh, they want their set up the same, like I said, you can typically ask for FTP access um, and then upload your new site design. And this is, of course, assuming you want to go live right away and then that's it. However, a lot of people will jump right to that step and that's really not what you should be doing. One important thing to note is that you're, that if you're replacing the old the old existing website, it's actually a good idea to take a backup of it. Even if it is, like I said, supposed to be replaced, just take that backup. All setups are different, but in general, what I'll do is I'll create a new folder called old and I'll put, and usually it all in caps just so I can see it, and I'll put all the old site files in there. And that's a good way to ensure that you don't delete something vital or have the site go down for a long time um, in the event that like when you re-up, when you upload your new stuff, something goes wrong, you know, you don't want to have too much uh, downtime. And if something does go wrong, what you basically do is you just take out your old file or take out your new file, sorry, and you copy those old files back to where they were. And then boom, you're back up and running in general. Um, Also keep in mind that I know Mike said, like, generally you won't be doing a CMS, but if you are doing a CMS and assuming their old site has a CMS, also take a backup of that database. So if you're use if they have like an old WordPress thing and you're just, you're going to be updating it to just a real simple, you know, HTML, CSS, JS with maybe just like a, a side note, uh, like, like a couch CMS, something that you kind of like, uh, I almost call those like a retrofit CMS where it's not like super, super heavy. It's like you make your static site and then you put the CMS in really easy just for basic updates. Just the reason why I mention any of this is because you really should don't be overwriting anything, including that database. Take a backup of that database. Put those those files in the old uh, folder, like make an old folder, dump them in there. Just make sure you don't delete anything that you can't get back. And that's really, really critical. Um, in addition to that, though, like a site owner may actually want to keep the old site around for people to use for a few weeks before migrating over to the new one. Um, sometimes they'll want to get customer feedback on the new design before fully committing and taking the old site offline. Sometimes they're, you know, humming and hawing over whether they want to keep a picture or something from there. So you just want to keep it in there. Every situation is different. But again, I'm going to reiterate this. Always remember to never delete something that you can't get back easily. Just back it up, even if the changes your inputting seem trivial. I'll give a prime example of this. What happened to us a couple weeks ago, I was updating one of our old projects that isn't super supported anymore. It's called free photos. Hamilton uh, was kind of our full-time focus is now definitely not anymore. But one of the things that I did was I was going through and I was just, just doing some updates and foolish me did not take a WordPress update before updating a couple of the plugins, which caused like a crash and like some plugin, uh, some plugin conflicts and everything else. I don't know if you saw my, Twitter post, but I, that, that's what that's referring to the, the WordPress plugin, uh, conflict that we got rid of or something. I can't remember how I worded it, but I put like the NASA guys dancing on there. Just, just a, it's just like something to note. Just, just always take a backup. Like I thought I was doing something trivial. 
and it wasn't. And then I was looking at old backups and I was like, oh God, like, how am I going to get this back? I'm going to have to just like work through it. I'm going to have to dump time into something that I just want to, you know, keep up because it's still viable, but it's just, we don't, we're just not our full-time focus anymore. So just, just back it up, people. Make sure everything works once it's all up and running. Put the new website up. Make sure everything's running just fine. And then that's it, basically. And then take that old site offline when your client says it's okay to do so. But uh, I think, unless Mike has any more comments, I think we're good to go to the web news. Mike? Yeah, no. Yeah, let's go. Um, okay, so web news. Uh, Android, desktop, and Chrome OS. So I'm gonna kind of go through like I always do with the with the every web news. I'm gonna kind of go through some points here, and then I got some questions that we will discuss. So software ecosystems are meant to bridge the gap between different pieces of hardware. Um, so for example, like a computer, like a desktop or laptop, and then also a tablet and a phone and a smartwatch. And these ecosystems bring together thing or bring bring like things like notifications and other features that we all enjoy cross platform, so we can continue to enjoy them at our desk or on the go. So, for example, there's like a different version of like a, your email app that might be on your on your watch, on your smartwatch versus the one that's on your desktop versus the one that's on your phone. So there's little different versions. So that ecosystem kind of keeps that experience as alive as it can. So in general, a lot of these ecosystems are bridging a literal OS gap uh, where people use multiple operating systems in a single uh, device setup, such as Windows, Android and Wear OS. So recently, uh, the Pixel Slate was released, bringing a quote-unquote laptop-like tablet that can run Android apps on top of Chrome OS. Uh, this type of device is basically, instead of a hardware bridge, it's actually kind of like a, instead of a software bridge, rather, it's more like a hardware bridge of sorts uh, that is trying to bring you the portability of a tablet, the versatility of using, of, of using familiar Android apps on your phone, while still having the ability to be used as a traditional laptop, assuming you buy the type cover for it. So this begs the question, where does Chrome OS fit into the equation when it leverages the use of Android apps? Uh, should we have should we have just an Android version that is, you know, quote unquote computer friendly? Something that comes to mind is like Samsung DeX, like should Android be able to go into some sort of computer mode? And is this rather strange hardware slash software bridge pointing towards a future of one OS on multiple devices? I will let Mike take it away from there. Yeah, it's a it's a good discussion because it's really coming to fruition now, um, and you can we can bring in another competitor, and that's the iPad uh, iPad Pro, especially the one that just came out. That's supposed to be kind of like your bridge between the laptop and the mobile experience. Um, and the question that I will well, if we're talking about it from a web development perspective, let's say like this is a web development podcast. Uh, could we use a Chrome OS or a iPad Pro device to become our full-time kind of mobile development station? And uh, the answer right now is no, I don't think we could. Uh, not all the tools that we need run on all those devices, especially not the iPad Pro. Chrome OS is kind of like a container, like a a build of Linux. So you can probably get around that, uh, install you know, use Chrome OS as a base, maybe have it multi-boot um, into a Linux distro for your development needs. Uh, use Chrome OS for kind of like your sit at home, watch Netflix kind of thing. You could probably get around it somehow. Um, I haven't heard very good reviews on the Pixel Slate, which is unfortunate because the hardware of it looks absolutely amazing. 
Uh, it looks great. Uh, like the screen is really nice. I like the aspect ratio for con- like for doing any sort of productivity work. Um, but I, I just don't, I don't know, like my workflow, I use Android Studio. Um, I don't think that's going to run very well on a device like that. I don't think I could use Android Studio, obviously, on an iPad Pro. So that's out of the question. A Samsung DeX kind of situation. Again, I don't think Android phones are powerful enough. Uh, even though they are getting very powerful, uh, nor do they have the tooling required to really power a workflow like like the one I would have for it. Um, like we were working recently with Matt, uh, actually on the No BS News application downstairs, and I was using my Ultrabook, which is running a full copy of Windows 10, and uh, I had it connected to two monitors. And that 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 was really convenient, but even that thing, and that ha- it has a uh, mobile i7 processor in it. That thing started chugging along after you know opening up a significant amount of Chrome apps and op- and and doing some uh, you know compiling with Vue.js and having all that all all that going. So I don't know. I I think for a web development, even like a light web development workload, it might. I don't think it's a it's a viable solution right now for a for a web design. On the other hand, having that stylus and being able to quickly create a uh, wireframe that's a different story. So I think I'll let you discuss that since you're more of a you're more of the design guy and creating wireframes. I'm assuming would be great on devices like that. I think I think what creating wireframe would be fine because I do use um, Balsamic. It's not my Balsamic anymore. I think it's called Balsamic Cloud um to make wireframes and that's a web application like i don't have anything downloaded for that so like that should be totally fine uh it should work just as intended there's a pen there if you need to you know draw up anything really quick if you need to like draw up like um like maybe some people like to just make wireframes like just drawing so there's a pen uh, that you can purchase separately from the pixel slate for example and you can use that it's like a stylus um so you could use that if you wanted to do draw out your own wireframes like that really roughly so like that part is absolutely possible. But the thing is, is like we bought um, a tablet for myself, like for work to sort of be able to show off people and show off uh, designs and other things to people. And it's, it, it runs full Windows 10 Pro because we didn't want to have a device that was limited in, in what it could do. Like I'll go to a client's place and sometimes like the conversation will turn to, oh, can we quickly FTP in here and change this image? And it's, you know, I'm sure that a Chrome OS, you know, solution could do that, but it's just more, maybe it's just me, um, or maybe it's just us because we're maybe a little older. I don't know whether, um, people are more used to doing things on their phone nowadays, but it's, it's like one of those things where it's like we, I, I would turn to FileZilla before I go and look for some other random application. Um, now I will say to add salt to that, that I understand this is not web development related, but I do have a few friends in IT and a lot of them do work remotely from their phone. And some of it's like really tricky, like server work. Like they'll type in full commands and everything on their phone. And I'm like super not down with that. Uh, I will say that I do SSH into a server that I have in the house here uh, with an application on my phone, but I do not do complex things on there. I'll check some statuses and be like, all right, it's, you know, it's beyond saving from my phone. I'm going to go sit at a computer these guys will do like full, like logging into servers, fixing infrastructures, you know, a lot of stuff from their phones. So, you know, if you're one of those people that do that, maybe you're getting the most from your phone and maybe like a Chrome, Chrome OS, like a, maybe the pixel slate would actually work great for you. Assuming you could find every app that you would need for whatever you're doing. 
Um, however, Mike made a good good thing a good mention about the fact that like we couldn't run as far as I know we couldn't run Vue.js on this thing. Like you have to like you have to compile a Vue.js project down to like a basic site and then you can you know FTP that up or whatever you're doing with it. You can't really do that with as far as I know with a, with Chrome OS. Chrome OS ha- definitely has its uses, but it's 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 one of those things where. Like this, the computer that I'm on right now is running Windows 10, the one that we're recording on. I'm not going to, if I want to go watch Netflix later on this computer, I'm not going to go and like get, you know, a, like a um, a middleman OS, if you will. Like you were saying, like oh, Chrome OS could be your, like kind of like your your watch Netflix OS. I'm not going to go fire up, or even I'm not even going to dual boot this computer so that I can run another OS just so I can watch Netflix. I'm just going to watch Netflix on this more powerful machine. And so I think what a, a lot of my hesitation comes in is where do these they're not i don't think they're considered hybrid os's maybe they are but that's kind of where i put them at is it's like this os doesn't really have a home to me android's sort of like your mobile thing you know ios is your mobile thing mac os and windows is more or less your desktop slash laptop slash workstation you know whatever it is they all they come in all types of all types of like sizes and form factors nowadays you know, Android Wear or um, whatever the, I think it's just called Watch OS, but whatever was on the Apple Watch um, and Android Wear, obviously on Android Wear watches. And then, of course, there's the whole like Samsung ecosystem with, I think it's like Tizen or Tizen or whatever on the watch. But like, th- like if you notice, like those are specific experiences and they all live somewhere. Why does Chrome OS n- need, and I put that in quotes, to leverage Android apps? And do you nearly need Android apps to run on your on your computer? And then, that to me, like my next, like I'm kind of going through the UX of it, right? So if you really want Android apps to run on your computer, first of all, you could run an emulator, like an Android emulator, or you can mirror your device. But why doesn't Windows or like Google specifically make an app that allow said Android apps to run in some sort of web view or whatever it would be inside of on on your computer? And so you could just use, like I could post essentially from my computer onto Instagram. But it would be through, like, the official means. Like, I don't know whether it would be mirroring from my phone or however that would work. But it would be the official Android Android app running in some sort of container on my computer. And so, like, the fact that there's these holes in, in this conversation, to me, make it seem like, like, what are we doing here? I don't know whether that, I don't know whether that, like, kind of leaves me at a no opinion. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I... I I have I have too many questions for me to consider a purchase of a Chrome OS device. We've made Chrome apps in the past, um, and I do like Chrome OS. I have nothing against it, but it's it's just the fact of like, where does this thing live? I, I remember uh, when the iPad Pro came out, the latest version, people were freaking out because it had the USB C, and people were saying like, oh, you could plug it into your your camera and there's like a new I think Adobe was making a, a few applications specifically for the iPad Pro or something like that and I, I never looked too much into it so I might be incorrect in that but it was something like that it was like it was like some sort of I think it was Adobe I think it was Photoshop was being made specifically for the iPad and people were like this is the future like this is what's going on but I was like no I'm like may, like maybe because Apple has the pull but in general it's like are they really going to make a specific app, app version for this when they, when like the real, like the real, like, like seriously, the real photo editors, the guys who are, who are like needing to put out really, really quality, massive prints for studio work. Those guys are not going to be using an iPad pro. 
maybe to dump the photos. But I don't think it's the future. And those are the power users of Photoshop. You know, those are the power users of Adobe applications. I don't see this. And but and, and Chrome OS falls into the same place. Like to me, Chrome OS is a worse toy than an iPad, if that makes any sense. Would you give a kid an iPad or a Chrome OS? He's not going to know what the hell is going on in Chrome OS. And it, you know, it's running on this tablet and it's like all this like fancy stuff. But where does Chrome OS live? Like, why, why isn't it just an Android tablet? Why is it, why, you know what I mean? Like, why does Google have this, this thing where Android, you know, admittedly it's been kind of dying down the past three years, but Android has and does run on, on tablets. Why do we have a Chrome OS tablet that runs Android apps and then Android on a tablet and then Android on a phone? Like, like what's going on here? Like just choose an operating system and kind of go with it. Or in terms of Apple, I mean, they chose it, but it's all different. There's like the different, you know, iOS and then there's iOS for iPad. If, you know, whatever differences there are there, I'm sure there are some on the development end. And then there's Mac OS. They're separate. Like choose a path and don't like, I don't know about you, but like, where does this product fit? Yeah. So yeah, I'll address that. So um, the Mac OS iOS conversation is something that uh, I believe is happening in- internally as well inside of uh, mac mac's internal studio and the ipad pro is i think a step in that direction where i believe so i apple is it's known that apple is creating their own processors uh their arm-based processors so not x86 which is mac os is based on x86 right right um ios is based on arm mac is making their own arm processors they're making their own desktop class or laptop class ARM processors very soon, they're going to be ditching Intel and probably AMD fairly, fairly soon, probably in the next two, three years, I'm guessing we're going to see our first Apple computer come out with a Apple processor inside of it as their like CPU. Um, I believe that there will be a hybrid or some sort of a, a version of iOS that will power it when it comes out. So I think, I think Mac OS will be phased out within, you know, a certain amount of time. I think it's going to take a while, but I think there will be a device powered by iOS. That's much more desktop friendly in the future. And, and I think that they're going to combine the operating systems and then, okay. On, on the topic of Android and Chrome OS, there is a separate OS being built right now as well called Fuchsia OS. That's the working name and like the internal name. It's probably not going to be called that in the end. Uh, which will also be a very similar s- system where it will combine the phone and the compute computer into one OS. So I think what they're, what what you're saying is correct, and I think internally they believe that as well. So I think that they are working towards a solution for that problem, where like why have these two OSs when they both can do the same things that the other can do, uh, and one is better at the other, the other one's better at one. like it just. Like, it doesn't make sense to have all these devices that can do all the same things when some of them suck at those things. Like, why? It doesn't make, it, it, it's, it doesn't make sense. I completely agree with you. Like, um, the one the one thing that I'm battling, battling with right now, actually, in terms of having multiple devices is the fact that uh, for my development device, I have a, you know, a, a PC, a computer that can do almost all the development I need, but it can't do iOS development. Like I cannot create an a, a IPA file 
on my Windows PC. Like it's just not possible. My struggle right now is the fact that I would my next development computer, and I don't know when this is going to be, maybe in the next two years or so, um, is probably going to have to be a Mac OS computer because I don't want to have 15 different devices or I don't want to have to carry around two different laptops with me when I travel because of the fact that I have to, you know, program on, like, I, I do actively make iOS applications currently. I might not make them in the future, but right now I am. So I need a Mac and I have an older Mac right now that I, I bought, uh, we bought secondhand for the business. Um, it's a MacBook Pro from like 2011 or 2012. Uh, it's working just fine for kind of like, you know, being a proxy for creating uh, IPAs uh, because we're just doing web applications, packaging them through Cordova and creating the IPA. It's kind of only doing the IPA side, uh, which is fine. But if I were to have to go in and create, you know, iOS features in that and embed, I, like create a whole app in inside it with Swift and and um, create create an iOS application, it would be kind of a pain. It's slow. I did put an SSD in it, but it is slow. Like I, I can run a couple applications. It does chug along. Compiling takes quite a bit. Um, so it'd be kind of a pain to, to, to move on from that. So the, the only solution I see is to switch to a Mac device, which is really, really against my, my, you know, I don't like Mac OS, Mac OS. I don't like Apple's goals. I don't like the fact that they, they charge the, the money that they charge for computers that aren't worth worth it in my opinion but they're really pigeonhole pigeonholing me in this in this situation um and i don't know what to do about that that's i guess that's a more of a separate discussion to be honest but it's kind of annoying me and this talk of you know multiple os's and having to carry around multiple devices kind of brought it up again and uh yeah i don't i don't really know what to do about that situation um but yeah i don't i think that's it like i, I think that that that's my like I'm I internally both companies Matt have s- solutions to your problem in my that that's how I see it and and, I think, and we assume like I mean yeah. assuming everything goes correctly we assume that they're going to come to light soon yes. ish yes exactly they're going to come to light soonish and they'll they'll I don't know how good they're going to be I don't know if they're going to be good solutions but I think that they are it, they do see the ridiculousness of having two separate o- OSs that do the same things. They are moving towards a unified solution. So that it, it's a good thing, in my opinion, um, I think, <laughs> as long as they don't screw it up. But uh, yeah, that's really where, where I stand on it. Well, I, I would say their biggest fear, or at least my biggest fear if I was in their shoes, would be the Windows RT incident. And I'll call it an incident because... Windows RT really didn't get really didn't get that much like that much uh popularity. Like it didn't really get that much like that many apps. It really didn't get that much recognition. It really didn't get it really didn't get what it was what it was aiming to get. And mm-hmm. cuz Windows RT for those of you who don't know was the ARM or ARM version of Windows and it was around the Windows 8 era if I remember correctly and it was just like it just really didn't it really didn't hit it off, and I think it. I think it was because it. It's like it's like you're using Windows, but I'm using Windows RT. You know what I mean? It's always like that. Oh, you're using that. You know what I mean? It's that separation. And I and I would say that one thing that I that is weird is Mac or Apple specifically is supposed to be making a Mac Pro like the Mac Tower or whatever that's supposed to be more true to the the professional, right? They had like the little trash can design or whatever you want to call it. And that was, you know, considered kind of not professional friendly. 
And so they, you know, they've kind of pledged. Uh, so from, from what I've heard from my Mac friends, I don't like follow Mac that much, but uh, from, from, from my Apple fanboy friends, they, they say that, you know, Apple has essentially pledged to making a really good professional desktop experience again. If they're doing yep. that, that has to be x86, in my opinion. Now, I kind of get that's a really good point you brought up because I was mentioning the whole Photoshop or whatever Adobe app was being made for the iPad. You know, mm-hmm. that is ARM. So if they are like, like that is kind of a step. I kind of see why people are freaking out where it's like that is kind of a step. Like, hey, somebody's remaking something for ARM. But I I struggle with I struggle with like I understand that transitions are always kind of difficult. Right. Where there's always like this weird, like, like the transition into smartphones was weird for people, but it wasn't as, it wasn't so weird as like, oh, by the way, none of these applications where you got to restart. Like think about, think about people's digital libraries of, or even just if they're not digital of just like CD keys that they own, right. Of all these pieces of software they own on their computers. And you know, maybe they'll stop using it in a few years due to them being, you know, old or whatever, but Think about all the, the the accumulation of software that that people have on a computer. I have a massive, like a massive CD wallet behind me of like all like old games and software and everything from literally the '90s, um, onward, like maybe like really late '90s, 2000 onward to today, and like they're just CDs, and that stuff's for x86. That stuff is not. That stuff is not for ARM. ARM, as far as I knew, no, did, did not exist back then. Or at least it wasn't in the consumer hands. And so, like, I wonder if this is going to be one... Like, this isn't a transition of, like, oh, you know, Samsung's going a new design direction. And people don't like the new design. It's not as simple of a controversy as that. This is literally a fundamental shift. And I can see it failing myself. I could, I could, yeah. I could see it flopping hard. Like I could see these big boys in the in the space being like, you know what? I'm not going to make an app for that. And then you, yep. and then you're screwed. Uh, really, it's definitely possible. And like, uh, we see there, there's Windows laptops out there now. And I don't know if you know this, but there's Windows laptops running ARM processors, uh, the eight thirty five and the eight forty five, uh, and they're running emulated x eighty six on them. So, I mean, any any Windows Store app is running on ARM, obviously, but any other application, and you can install any application or almost any application on them uh, from Windows, are running in an emulated environment. And they're uh, lower performance, but not, like, so low that you can't use it like before it was. Like, I know that there was an attempt to do this a while ago, and it, it failed horribly, but this time they've actually kind of done a better job at least it's not the greatest job ever but a better job um the advantage of these devices is that their battery life is ridiculous like i'm pretty sure you get like 27 hours of battery life on a windows device that's pretty incredible yeah like if you're especially if you're using the arm side of it like if you're using edge and if you're using uh like windows applications and stuff like, like you're windows get, 10 mail or whatever yeah exactly you're gonna get a lot of battery life and then you also have the option of not using those applications and using actual things so it i don't know if apple's gonna go that way though i don't see apple uh 
compromising and being like, no, we're going to allow x86, our x86 applications on these devices. I feel like they're going to be the ones that are going to be like, if you want to be part of Apple ecosystem, you have to create either a web app or you have to create a ARM based application for, for our, for our system. And I don't think they're going to roll out the uh, OS or a device with the OS without having all of their essential applications already created in ARM ready to go for the consumer. Like I, I can see them delaying it severely just based on that because they're very much first impressions are key and first impressions are king kind of thing. And they, they know they can see what happened with uh, windows RT and stuff. And I'm, I'm sure that they're smart enough to learn from it. So it's like, it's, un- it will be unfortunate uh, because like you said, people have libraries of old x86 stuff and they probably won't be able to use them on the max on the Mac side of it, uh, on the Windows side, you can. Like I said, Windows is very compatible with everything, and that's kind of where they're going. But Mac is, in my eyes, I don't think they're going to allow anything other than their own ARM proprietary stuff on there. Like, that's how I see Mac's very elitist in that sense and very clean. Like, they, they won't want, a, like, a, a de- detricated or deprecated experience, even even just allowing another application on there that doesn't run natively. And another thing that really that could delay them quite a lot is realistically, they really could like, and, and I'm, I'm, this is a hundred percent speculation. They really could get rid of iOS and just have a new OS on everything. Yeah. You know, that, I that, think that's that, what, that, could that would be the goal. Yeah. Yeah. That would be the goal because otherwise they're kind of jury rigging again, I guess. Although at the same time, at the same time, they will be like, iOS is still getting expanded, so I mean, all they would be doing is adding a mouse interface. It's mm-hmm. not exactly the craziest thing in the world to assume, but I also didn't know that thing about x86 um, emulation at, at all. Actually, I had no idea. I honestly yeah. thought that ARM was dead until we started talking about it right now. Uh, other than obviously <laughs> iPad, I knew that, um, but I never thought of it as like if Apple is doing that, if Apple's doing that processor stuff, if it's looking at you know, getting an operating system, a desktop one working on a, an ARM processor, then that's what the freak out was. I knew that people were freaking out because it was an iPad, but my, my whole thought was, well, who cares? It's an iPad. I'm not going to be doing professional video editing on there. Probably maybe in a pinch, but generally probably not. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Well, this is, uh, it's going to be interesting. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. Cause like, this is such a, like, this is literally a fundamental like I don't think this can be understated. This is a fundamental shift in computing if this does yep. go this way. A fundamental shift that failed once or once or twice for a couple of companies. Um so it's going to be super interesting. And I wonder with I wonder whether cuz Apple's always sort of been the separate devices uh kind of company if that makes sense. So like like kind of how the Surface is like a tablet and a computer if you buy the type mm-hmm. cover. Um I mean, they obviously have the Surface Studio and stuff, but, like, in the first iterations, they were, like, you know, the Surface was just the Surface tablet. Uh, and then the Surface Book came along later. But what's interesting is that Apple has always been, like, here's your desktop experience, and there's two types, right? The all-in-one or the, the, the tower. Then you have your laptop. Then you have your uh, iPad in various iterations. And then you have your, your uh, watch, again, your watch and your phone all in different iterations across all these products 
for different price points in that. But they've always been that like separation, right? This is the watch. This is the phone. This is the iPad. This is the f- the computer, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what they do with an OS. But um, maybe that'll solve my ecosystem problem. Yeah, we'll see. We'll, we'll see. Uh, I think, I think that's it. Um, I kind of want to lay down. <laughs> yep. <laughs> to be blunt, and I do have to edit this and upload it tonight. Um, so, uh, unless you have anything else to say, Mike, I think I'm going to run the old conclusion. Do it up. All right. Well, thanks for listening, and make sure you don't miss an episode by subscribing on the platform of your choice. You can follow us on the socials via at HTML all the things. That's on Facebook and Instagram. We are on Twitter at HTML Everything. We're also on Medium, which we now put the show notes on. We are also on GitHub. And uh, we're also on Patreon. And uh, Patreon's at patreon.com slash HTML all the things. Check out the tiers and give that a go. Feel free to leave a comment or a review on the platform you are listening to this on. And we are signing off. We'll be right back.